Good morning, Southridge. It is so good to be with you today. My name is Tamil. I am a pastor at a church called Evergreen Heights in a little town called Simcoe. And over the last few years, I've had the chance to get to know some of your leaders and to learn about your church. And I have been so inspired by the way you do community here, by the way you live out your faith, and by the way you include and amplify the voices of people in the margins. And so I want to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for being a community that embodies the gospel so well. I am here as a guest today, but this is a church that in many ways feels like home, both because I resonate with the heartbeat of this community and because I have a habit of sneaking into your services when I'm on vacation. Well, when I was fresh out of high school, I took part in a discipleship program called Out of Town that involved traveling to Guatemala with a group of 35 young adults. And one of the adventures that we had the opportunity to sign up for while we were there was mountain biking down a volcano. And at the time, I couldn't imagine a more exciting experience to be able to go home and tell my friends about. I pictured myself flying off ramps and soaring over pools of lava. I was so captivated by the idea of mountain biking down a volcano that I either didn't hear or completely disregarded the prerequisite to participate, which was mountain biking experience, something that I did not have. And I signed up immediately. And it wasn't until I was standing at the top of this trail looking down that I realized I had made a huge mistake. It was steep, it was narrow, there were twists and turns and tree roots everywhere, but it was too late to go back. So I spent the next several hours dragging my feet on the ground and clenching my brakes and inching my way down this course while an instructor shook her head and pleaded with me to put my feet on the pedals. Have you ever found yourself in one of those situations where you loved the idea of something, but then realized that the actual doing of the thing was way more difficult than you had imagined? Today, we are continuing your series on Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Up to this point in the book of Philippians, Paul has been calling the believers in Philippi to embody the self-giving love of Christ and to live in unity and to stand firm as they contend for the gospel together. We can imagine that as the Philippian church sat together and listened to Paul's letter being read out loud, they would have been inspired and captivated by the idea of being this kind of community. I mean, this is the kind of community that we all want to be a part of. But in the passage we're looking at today, things get real. Because Paul takes those big, beautiful ideas about unity and love, and he applies them to a messy, painful, real-life conflict. And we can be sure that for the people involved, those big, beautiful ideas that were giving them warm fuzzies just a few moments ago now felt nearly impossible to live out in practice. So let's have a look. Philippians 4, verses 2 to 3. Verse 2 says this. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So Euodia and Syntyche are leaders in the Philippian church and there has been a breakdown in their relationship. 
We don't get any details about the conflict, but we can assume that it wasn't a major theological dispute or an issue of misconduct, because Paul always gives correction when he's addressing those kinds of situations. This is a fracture that's taken place in a friendship that was most likely rooted in some sort of disagreement about their ministry in Philippi. Now, Paul does something in this passage that he rarely does in his letters. He identifies these women by name. In our culture, one of the ways that we shame people is by calling them out publicly on social media. And so it's easy for us to get the sense that Paul's identifying these women to kind of single them out. But that's not what is going on here. In this culture, refusing to name an enemy was a way of showing disrespect. Paul addresses these women by name as a sign of their friendship. As he writes from his jail cell in Rome, this is as close as he can get to looking these women in the eyes and speaking to them personally. And this conflict was having an impact on the entire community as people took sides and built camps. By addressing it publicly, Paul was giving the rest of the church an opportunity to check their own posture and to think about what they could do to move things in the direction of reconciliation. In verse 3, Paul calls on one person in particular to get involved. He says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion. And again, we don't know exactly who Paul is addressing here. But this is somebody that the community is familiar with and who Paul trusts to enter into the conflict and help the women sort things out. So I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life. When there is a conflict, we tend to either mind our own business and stay out of it, or to take a side and widen the gap of division within our community. But to Paul, neither of those responses will do. This matters too much. Unity matters too much. The gospel matters too much. So he asks this trusted companion to enter right into the middle of the mess and help these women find their way through it. After all, Paul says, these are women who have contended for the gospel alongside of him. These are women who know and love Jesus. So regardless of how impossible reconciliation might feel, what holds them together is deeper and stronger than anything that could possibly be tearing them apart. In these two little verses, Paul addresses this big, messy situation that was full of all kinds of pain and resentment. A friendship has fallen apart. There's division in the church. And as far as Paul is concerned, the gospel is at stake because unity isn't just an afterthought. It's central to what it means to be a community of people who find our identity in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but this passage actually brings me comfort because it's easy to look around at all of the division that exists in the church today and to feel like things have gone so far off the rails that they could be beyond repair. We tend to have an idealistic picture of how things used to be in the early church. But passages like this one remind us 
that conflict has always existed in the church. Conflict is an inevitable part of being in community. It's an inevitable part of having a group of humans with different backgrounds and experiences and personalities trying to do life together, which is unfortunate because most of us don't like conflict. Having unresolved conflict in our lives can consume us. It can bring us down. It can make us lose sight of who we are and who we want to be. It can mean losing people and relationships that matter to us. If there was an easy way out of conflict, if there was a button we could just push that would make it go away, that would get our relationship back to where it used to be, most of us would push it. But here's something that I've learned from years of buying assemble-it-yourself furniture. Some things are easier to build than they are to repair. A while ago, I ordered a TV stand online, and when it arrived, I spread out all of the pieces on my floor, and I got it put together. And had I followed the directions carefully, I'm sure everything would have worked out beautifully. But unfortunately, I missed a step. So when I went to pull the TV stand towards the center of my wall, I heard a cracking noise and I felt the one side collapse at the base. And upon further investigation, I discovered that the particle board had split and broken apart where all of the hardware was. And so when I went to try to fix it, I couldn't get things to fit together or tighten up the same way anymore. I had to call someone who knows how to use actual tools. Some things are easier to build than they are to repair. It's true when it comes to assemble-it-yourself furniture, and it's true when it comes to our relationships. Building friendships is pretty intuitive, but once trust has been broken, once hurtful words have been said, once a betrayal has taken place, things don't seem to fit together the same way anymore. And it can be difficult to imagine how repairing the relationship could even be possible. And so often, we respond by either lashing out at the person who hurt us, whether to their face or behind their back, or we end the friendship and go our separate ways. But Paul urges these women to find another way forward, to lean in and do the deep hard work of reconciliation. And there are four things Paul does in this passage that can help us navigate the tough terrain of interpersonal conflict. And even to come out the other side with a deeper relationship that more fully reflects the grace and the power of the gospel. The first one's this. Paul calls each of the women to own their part of the conflict, to take responsibility and initiative in the ways that they can to repair the friendship. In verse 2, Paul uses the exact same words in his appeal to each of the women. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He doesn't take sides or place all of the responsibility on one person's shoulders. Instead, he urges each of these women to think about what they can do to move things towards reconciliation. When we're in a conflict, it's easy to find reasons why the other person should be the one to make the first move. They started it, it's their fault, they don't want to work things out anyways. But when both people are waiting and avoiding the tough conversations, we just get stuck there. Romans 12:18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
as far as it depends on you. We can't control what another person does or how they respond when we reach out, but we can do what we can do to move things towards reconciliation. And there are two questions to ask ourselves when we're taking an honest look at our role in working out a conflict. The first question is, what do I need to take responsibility for? When a relationship breaks down, it's tempting to put all of the blame on the other person. But reconciliation always begins with an honest assessment of the part we played in the conflict. And so we start by asking ourselves and asking God what we need to own and apologize for. And the second question is, what do I need in order to heal, forgive, and move forward? Reconciliation doesn't mean sweeping things under the rug and pretending everything's okay. True reconciliation requires honesty and vulnerability. Sometimes before we can move forward, we need to talk things through, just to be heard. Sometimes we need to ask someone for prayer. Sometimes we need some space and time and solitude to let God work in us and heal us. We own our part of the conflict by taking responsibility for our share of what went wrong and taking initiative in asking for what we need from God and from others in order to move forward. The second thing Paul does in this passage is call the women to embrace a posture of humility. Paul tells the women to be of the same mind in the Lord. And just a couple of chapters back, Paul described what that looks like. Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our human tendency is to do everything we can to fight for and hold on to power and status. But Jesus did just the opposite. He had all of the power and status in the universe, and he laid it down in humility and love. And Paul tells these women that the way forward to reconciliation means doing the same thing. It means laying down our pride, listening well, and setting aside our own agenda for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. The third thing Paul does is remind the women what story they are a part of. Conflict narrows our field of vision. It becomes the only thing we think about when we think about that other person. But Paul reminds Euodia and Syntyche that as big and consuming as their conflict might feel, it's not what defines their friendship. What defines their friendship is this great big story of salvation that they've been invited into. These women have shared history, serving God alongside Paul and their other companions. And they have a shared future. Their names are written in the book of life. They will spend all of eternity together in heaven where everything and everyone will be healed and made whole by God's perfect love. And that shared future is one that they're called to embody here and now. The church is called to be a community that reflects heaven here on earth, which means working through the tough stuff, extending forgiveness, and finding our way back to unity and love.
And lastly, Paul calls on the women to lean on their community, to receive help from someone they trust. When we're in conflict, we often look to others for validation. What if instead we turn to someone we know will keep, help us keep our eyes on Jesus? And rather than asking them to take our side, we ask them to help us find a way to move towards reconciliation. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the church is like a body. When all of the parts are healthy and working together, all is well. But when there's a fracture or a tear, the entire body needs to rally together its resources to get things healed and mended. Part of being in community means helping each other live into this beautiful vision of the unity that we have in Christ. Now, maybe you're thinking, that all sounds great, but the conflict I'm in is way too big and way too messy to resolve. There's a verse in the book of James that carries a lot of hope for those situations. James 3 verse 18 says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Have you ever planted a seed? Doesn't feel like you're doing much in the moment, does it? Seeds are small. They seem insignificant. When you take a seed and toss it in the dirt, it doesn't feel like anything has changed. But eventually, new life starts to break through. When we're trying to find our way through conflict, usually what we really want is a solution that's the size of the problem. We want to find that thing we can do or that conversation we can have that will make everything better all at once. But that's not always how reconciliation happens. Sometimes reconciliation can only take place over time. As hurts are healed, as trust is rebuilt, we might not have a solution the size of the problem, but we can plant the seed of peace that we're able to plant today. We can take the next step that moves us in the direction of reconciliation. We can embrace a new posture or send that text message or say we're sorry, whatever it might be. And every seed that we sow and every step that we take opens up a little bit more space for God to do what only he can do to bring about his healing and transformation. This passage from Philippians reminds us that the church is a place where conflict happens, yes, but it's also a place where forgiveness happens. It's also a place where reconciliation happens. It's also a place where God takes broken relationships that seemed beyond repair and he brings them back to life. It's hard to see it in the middle of the mess, but for all of the potential that conflict has to wreak havoc and tear us apart, it also opens up an opportunity for God to work in powerful ways. Conflict can expose our wounds and weaknesses so that we can bring them to Jesus for healing. Conflict can give us clarity about what really matters and about who we want to be. And conflict presents an opportunity to practice the forgiveness and grace that are at the heart of the gospel. So how is God calling you to take one step towards reconciliation in a relationship where there's conflict or tension? What's the seed of peace that God's inviting you to sow today? Working through conflict isn't easy, but we don't have to do it alone. As we step into the vulnerability that comes with mending the tears of a fractured relationship, 
God's spirit is with us to give us strength and peace and lead us forward. And we are held within a community that shares this commitment to living out the unity that we have in Christ. Reconciliation is the way that those big, beautiful ideas about unity and love and standing firm together get worked out in real life in our midst. And when we're willing to lean in and let God lead us in repairing and renewing our relationships, our communities will become places where people experience a little bit of heaven here on earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your peace. We thank you for your faithfulness. And God, we ask that you would help each one of us to be people who don't just love the idea of unity, who don't just love the idea of being a community that loves well, but who actually does the hard work of working that out in our real lives. God, so that we can be a community that reflects your love and your peace into our worlds and where people can experience a taste of heaven here on earth. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs>